Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 for our Old Testament scripture reading this morning. It's a short passage, but one that is critical for understanding what Paul is doing in our sermon text and New Testament lesson this morning. Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Here's the weeping prophet and the Lord speaking through the weeping prophet. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these are the things in which I delight, declares the Lord. Now turning with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So we're getting closer and closer to the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We find all that he has been building and working towards beginning to come to full fruition as he sets in his sights those false teachers that boast in their own wisdom and righteousness and glory. Here, Paul begins to pull out the big guns, as it were. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast just a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast, for you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or you bear with it if someone devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, again, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews those forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And so if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness." The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. 
At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and I escaped his hands. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that as we consider what Paul is doing here, that you would illuminate our eyes to understand the true nature of the gospel and the cross in which we boast. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the British Empire in the 18th century, there were arguably three groups of people treated with greater disdain more than any other of the groups. Children, the poor, and the Irish. All three were considered to be an economic burden in an empire that had gained an enormous amount of wealth through her colonies and her conquests. By the mid-18th century, the economic strain had become quite noticeable. And so in 1729, one author penned what he considered to be a modest proposal to loosen Britain's economic burdens. The solution was simple, that the Irish poor would sell their children to the rich as food. Jonathan Swift goes on in great detail describing the ways in which children could be served up, stewed, roasted, baked, or broiled. And he begins to write of the financial benefits that would benefit the British from such a modest proposal. Upon first reading this, perhaps you read this story in school and you think, what a madman, what a loon, how could this guy get away with such writings? This guy should be locked up. Of course, one would misunderstand that work by Jonathan Swift, a modest proposal. If you did not know that he was engaging in a work of satire. Satire is particularly a literary genre that's intended to, to expose stupidity or vice by playing according to the standard rules of the game. Probably the, the, the best modern example we see is, is some stand-up comedians exposing the hypocrisy or at least the inconsistency in uh, the thought of modern culture. But we see here that Swift was no fool. He played the fool in order to expose the folly of those who truly had been exploiting the poor, the children, and the Irish to expose the, uh, the, the mistreatment that these three groups of people had undergone at the hands of the wealthy. Satire could be both humorous and shocking. I remember reading a, of an account of uh, C.S. Lewis when he had uh, uh, published the Screwtape Letters. Some of those letters had made their way into weekly newspapers, and one uh, older lady was horrified that a Christian apologist would write a treatise on temptation from the perspective of a demon. She called it absolutely diabolical. Why would such a man write uh, talking about how you can tempt one another? Clearly, she did not understand what C.S. Lewis was trying to do as a failure to recognize the genre, the literary device that one is reading. Satire can not only be humorous, but it can be wise. It exposes our folly. It kind of lets our guard down. There's a winsomeness that comes to satire at times, that can help get past the the dragons that stand at the gates of one's own ego. You know, we read in Proverbs 24 that sometimes you're not to answer a fool at all. But Proverbs also says that you're to answer a fool at other times according to his own folly. This is exactly what we see Paul doing here. Paul's engaging in an act of satire. He plays the fool. He plays the court jester and the madman. 
in order to expose the inconsistency and hypocrisy of Corinth, how they have fallen prey to false teachers, how they have become deluded by a wicked enchantment. And now Paul tries to break the spell. This is an act of spiritual warfare. You remember chapter 10 when Paul had begun this new section. He says, what are we called to do in spiritual warfare? It is to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. And so Paul does that by exposing their own folly in their own foolish boasting as he mocks the so-called super-apostles. And he lays bare the foolishness of following them. So I'd like us to consider this passage in three particular sections. First, we'll consider the matter of foolish bearing in verses 16 to 21. Then foolish boasting in verses 22 to 29. And then faithful boasting in verses 30 to 33. So foolish bearing, foolish boasting, and then faithful boasting. Right away, Paul gives the heads up. He says, guys, I'm about to put on my dunce's cap here. I'm going to play the role of the nincompoop. I'm going to play the role of the fool. You see that in verse 17? I say this, not as the Lord would, but I'm speaking as a fool. I'm going to play the madman. In other words, he's saying something like this. You know, you boast in your pedigree. You boast in your persuasive speech. Let's take that train of thought and run with it. Let's see where this thought takes us. Let's try to run it to its logical conclusion here. It's really a work of brilliance what Paul is doing. But now Paul begins to say, why would I do such a thing? Before I put on my dunce's cap, why am I going to play the, the role of the fool? Basically, Paul says, because everyone else is doing it. You guys are doing it. You guys have been wearing a dunce's cap for a long time. Why not me? Let me boast a little bit. Please put up with my folly. Here comes the left hook. Why should we put up with Paul's folly that Paul is wanting us to put up with? He says, well, clearly this is your MO. Clearly this is what you're doing. You're already putting up with other people's shenanigans. Why not put up with mine as well? You could, hear, you could hear Corinth kind of going, what, what foolishness are we putting up with here? What's he talking about? Well, Paul says, well, look, somebody enslaves you, you tolerate it. Somebody has put handcuffs on you, and you're like, oh, okay. You're putting up with such folly. The language here is very similar to Paul's bluntness with the church of Galatia. In fact, it seems that they're, dealing, they're struggling with the very same thing. Think of what Paul says when he writes to the church of Galatia. False brothers had secretly infiltrated the churches, have spied out the freedom that we have in Christ, and they have tried to enslave us once again. For Paul, with respect to Galatia, he had, he had to be blunt and confront them head on. With Corinth, the matter is somewhat different. He has to trip them up. He has, to, he has to play the role of the fool and says, okay, let's think through this logically. What's going on? Let me boast a bit as well. You're already putting up with other people's shenanigans. Why don't you put up with my silliness uh, for a while as well? You see, in, uh, if you look back at verse 1, Corinth had already uh, not only tolerated, but gladly received a different Jesus, a different spirit, and hence a different gospel from these false teachers, these uber-apostles that Paul keeps mocking you think of uh, 
You know, I, I, I've been, uh, I just finished the Iliad uh, a couple weeks ago. I'm now reading through the Odyssey. And in the Odyssey, it, it harkens back to the, to the Trojan horse that takes place uh, during the Trojan War. And that's how the Greeks were able to infiltrate the uh, uh, legendary city of Troy. Uh, they put themselves inside a giant wooden horse, knocked on the door, and then said, you know, left a note saying, here's a gift for you. They let them in, and then under cover of night, the soldiers get out. And, and they subdue the city, right? It's one thing to be uh, caught hook, line, and sinker. It's one thing to be hoodooed by a bunch of people where you let in false teachers unbeknownst to yourselves, where you, uh, you've gotten duped. But that doesn't seem to be the case here with Corinth. It's not a matter of them being duped by false teachers. Uh, we see the language Paul's been using in this chapter, words like they, they tolerate, they bear, they put up with fools. And verse 19, they do it gladly. This sounds less like a city that has been uh, duped by a Trojan horse, and it sounds more like a city that has flung wide open its gates to let the enemy in. Verse 20, you bear with it when they devour you. These false teachers, they're eating you out of house and home. You imagine kind of this particular scenario. These false teachers have made their way in. They've, they've kind of brandished phony credentials, and they say, well, since we're, we're these super apostles, not unlike Peter, James, and John, you should let us in. And of course, uh, let us set up residence with you and stay for a while. Hey, why don't you go ahead and feed us your food? And so they keep eating people out of house and home. They're like locusts going from one church to another, feeding off of the poor. These are men who demand and demand and demand and demand. Ezekiel warned of such men. The prophet Ezekiel in in chapter 34 of of false shepherds who instead of feeding the sheep, devour the sheep. They get fat by eating their own. This is the picture of what these false teachers are doing. Paul says that's what they're doing to you and you're laughing it off like it's no big deal. You've invited Jeffrey Dahmer into your home and you're asking him if he would like seconds. So why don't you put up with my foolishness a bit? Because you guys are acting like a bunch of dummies. They take advantage of you. They entrap you. They strike you in the face. And you think that these guys are friends? You call them fellow brothers and sisters? You call them true teachers of a true gospel? This is madness. Let me ask you this, Corinth. Who is the real fool here? Notice the sarcasm. Verse 21, oh, look how smart you are. You put up with all these charlatans eating you out of house and home. I'm too weak. I'm too foolish to put up with that. It's dripping with sarcasm. But just as Paul asked them to bear with his foolishness, so now he begins to boast in such foolishness. He goes, okay, let's continue to carry this thought to its logical end. Here, Paul begins to give something of a curriculum vitae. He goes, here's my resume, let's swap notes. If we're going to have a battle of one-upmanship, then let's go ahead and do it. Let's go ahead and play this game. Verse 22, it's a matter of pedigree. Are they Hebrews? Well, me too. Are they Israelites? Ditto. Are they sons of Abraham? Yep, same here. So why are you treating them better? Here we've, gotten, we've been given an insight into the identity of whoever these false teachers were. It seems that they are Palestinian Judaizers. Not unlike the kind that Paul had already faced in Galatia. 
You read the book of Acts, this is the type of thing that Paul is having to, having to encounter in church after church after church after church of false teachers who are boasting in their own ingenuity, their own wisdom, their own spiritual gifts, and whatever have you, rather than in the cross of Christ alone. So again, Paul declares, I'm going to talk like a madman. He plays the fool to expose the folly. This is Proverbs chapter 24. And so in verse 24, Paul begins to describe his own accomplishments. How he suffers at the hands of religious leaders. 195 lashes, right? 39 times 5. These three-pronged whips made of bone to tear into your skin. Think of the physical scars that this leaves behind. Not just the religious leadership, but also the civil authorities. As he has been beaten with rods three times, even though he is a Roman citizen and under Roman law, he was to be exempt from such things. Here's a man who's being mistreated by the government and has no recourse for action. He has no appeal for vindication in human courts. He's been stoned once by a mob riot and left for dead. He's been shipwrecked three times. So you think of uh, enemies from the religious leadership, enemies from the civil government, Mobs hate him. Even natural disasters seem to be out to get him. Right? If, if there's a guy who's been in three different shipwrecks, chances are you probably don't want to ride with him on another boating excursion. Everywhere Paul turns, there's intense suffering. Be it the river or the highway at the hands of his own countrymen or the Romans in the city, in the country, at the sea. It's almost humorous as he keeps rattling on these lists of so-called accomplishments. Notice that Paul is calling these things accomplishments. You get an idea of what he's beginning to get at, even as he is assaulted by these, so, uh, by these false brothers. It's most certainly, I think, a jab at these super apostles who have infiltrated Corinth. And yet, everything he's undergoing with Corinth, I think, exemplifies his own relentless suffering. Remember 2 Corinthians? This, this reads like a bad breakup letter. Or at least a relationship that is on the rocks. If you want to think of, uh, of Paul courting this church and it comes to find out that the church is, is dating the drummer, the local garage band. What are you doing? Why do you keep buying into all this folly and this foolishness? He doesn't even have a job. This is not a pretty resume though when you read Paul's list of accomplishments. Again, notice what, what's going on here in this, this passage. Paul says, you want, you want me to boast? Well, here's my curriculum vitae. And then he talks about his accomplishments. You know, it, it's, it's like, like the episode of Seinfeld with George Costanza. Hello, my name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. It's the line he uses to try to meet ladies. And Paul is kind of like the George Costanza of the New Testament here. He's like, oh, you want to see my accomplishments? Everybody hates me. Natural disaster, civil authorities, religious authorities. All these things. Here it is. This is what I have to boast in. You know, in the ancient world, emperors would have these, these funerary inscriptions where they would list all of their deeds and accomplishments uh, to boast in all their... So even in dead, there would be these, these monuments to their glory uh, that they had accomplished as emperors. Caesar Augustus had one of these things too. Caesar Augustus, the, uh, the emperor of Rome at the time of Christ's birth, and when, when he died, 
There was one monument that his list of accomplishments, his own boasts were 35 paragraphs long. Not the most humble of emperors. But this is an excerpt from Augustus's accomplishments. He says, I have six letters from prominent people in Athens. The people in Rome extol my virtues. Three times I have spoken before imperial legates. Once I was received by Pompey. Twice I have received honoraria beyond my peers. In every quarter I am esteemed. Now listen to what Paul says. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea, everywhere suffering and loss. Think what Paul could have said. Paul could have said, I planted more churches. I've preached to more peoples. I've traveled more miles. I've gained more converts. I've written more books. But he doesn't do that. So the question we have to ask is why? I think what Paul is doing here is he is parodying Caesar's resume. Again, Caesar, six letters I have from prominent people, three times I have spoken before the imperial legates, once before Pompeii I was received, twice I received an honoraria. Paul says, five times at the hands of Jews I was beaten, three times with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. It seems to be an intentional uh, uh, mimicry, an imitation, a mockery of Caesar's own boast of accomplishments. And yet... Paul's accomplishments are nothing that any normal person would boast in. And yet he doesn't. Why does Paul do this? What we see, both here and in our passage next week, so he will continue this train of thought, is that Paul parrots those who boast in their own accomplishments just to expose how stupid such boasting really is. He takes Greek boasting and he turns it on its head. Here's a church that that relishes in being in the spotlight. And Paul now says, let's follow it to its own conclusion. And And he turns it on its head to show and expose it for the folly that it really is. Paul suffers in his curriculum vitae, his his CV. Not only these external pressures of beatings and verbal assault and imprisonment, hunger and thirst, but also the internal anxieties. Verse 28, apart from all these other things, there is that daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. Not just Corinth. Here's a man who's been appointed by God as an apostle. And there's a daily concern, will X church survive? Or will it fall prey to false teaching? Will it be destroyed by division and one-upmanship? It's a continual anxiety. It's a pressure that every minister worth his salt faces. How is the church going to fare? And so in verse 29, he says, Who is weak and I am not weak? You would expect Paul at this point to say, Who is strong and I am not strong? And yet Paul is bringing out the point that his accomplishments are all weakness and folly. From the outsider, it looks like Paul's entire ministry has been one abject failure after another. Paul's always on the run. He's always in prison. If we had a missionary come and give a report like that, and he described that as his entire life activity, we go, maybe you shouldn't be on the mission field anymore. It doesn't sound like success. Do I want to give money to that? And yet this characterizes Paul's entire ministry. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Quite literally, the text, who is led into sin and I am not burned? When people are being led away into temptation, he feels it. 
When he, when he hears of another brother who has fallen and been entrapped into sin or ensnared by a false teacher, it burns within him. He hates it. It makes him so furious. One commentator has put it like this, that Paul's greatest boast is his constant worry over Corinth's welfare. That is his boast. Who would ever put that on a curriculum, on a resume? You think of these big corporate jobs or even, you know, I've never been in the corporate world, but a, you know, a big megachurch. Let's say you put your, your name in the hat and you're interviewing. And they say, well, let's see, let's see your resume. What's everybody in, a, in, a, in the, the megachurch going to be looking for? They're going to look for a guy with letters behind his name. How many books has he written? How many uh, times does he show up on the conference circuit? And yet Paul goes, I've been shipwrecked three times. My civil rights have been violated a number of times, and I didn't complain about it. The religious uh, cool kids hate me. Some have even taken vows not to eat until they see me dead. He's not winning Mr. Popularity. But that's what Paul's doing. Paul says, remember chapter 3. What's that letter? You are our letter of recommendation. And so Paul is boasting in his own accomplishments to show, this is really stupid, guys. Why do you boast in these things? Paul's suffering is comprehensive. It is all-encompassing. He has nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, and yet Paul is still not done boasting. As we see here in verses 30 and following, he says, so if I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Not his strength. Philippians chapter 3. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast in anything save the cross of Christ. I guess that's Galatians, but Philippians. I count all things but loss for the sake of knowing him who died for me. And so I'm going to boast of these things that show my weakness. It's the only thing I'm going to boast in. This is the only reason, this is the only way we can, we can gel Paul's language when he says elsewhere, stop boasting. And now Paul says here, well, let me boast a little bit. He's engaging in this act of satire to show them the folly of actual boasting. Because guess what? If, according to human terms, Paul could outbeat everybody in terms of religious education and learning and know-how. And yet he doesn't flash those credentials. Because why? He sees it as pure foolishness. And then in verse 32, he goes on to speak, and this is somewhat odd, to speak of Damascus. It almost seems as if he's trailing off, as if he's lost his train of thought. What's going on here? Why is he talking about this King Aratus and, and Damascus? What, what's going on here? What happened to Damascus? It's where Paul finally met Jesus face to face. It is the story of Paul's great conversion where he was called to be an apostle of suffering. Was it that Jesus says to him, go now because you have many things to accomplish because I've called you to suffer greatly for my name. In the Roman Empire, just by the greatest glory uh, a Roman soldier could achieve was a glory as known as the Corona Muralis. Maybe the equivalent, something of like the, the Medal of Honor or the Navy Cross 
It was an honor that was bestowed upon the first Roman soldier who would scale a city wall as the army was invading or capturing, laying siege to a city. It would be considered his greatest boast, the first to scale in. And yet now Paul, what is Paul doing? His greatest boast is what? The time in which he is having to scale the city wall of Damascus under cover of night in a basket, not as he invades the city, but as he flees for his life. According to Roman standards, that'd be seen as kind of the greatest act of cowardice. Here's Paul, he's been converted to Christ, and now, as soon as he's converted, he runs. He's led outside of a basket, let down of a, of a, of a wall of the city. Christ has subjugated Paul. Christ has blinded Paul for a matter of days. Paul, entering Damascus as the executor of justice, is now fleeing for his life as a fugitive from justice. He doesn't scale the wall going in. It's not his boast. He scales it going out to flee for his life. Damascus has changed everything for Paul. It has turned his whole world upside down. Christ has captured Paul and has led him in a triumphal procession as his own prisoner and slave. Remember when we looked at chapter 2 just about a year ago? Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. It is not, Paul is not saying that Christ is leading Paul alongside as a co-victor. Paul is saying, thanks be to God who through Christ is leading me in chains. And that is what I will boast in. How does Paul begin every one of his letters? Paul, an apostle and slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows his place. Paul knows the things in which he can and cannot boast. But does Corinth? Paul's going to continue this rhetoric, and it's going to get heightened even more over the next few weeks. I think we would do well to stop now and ask, what is the point of all this? Where are we supposed to get out of this when we read this particular passage of Scripture. Is Paul giving us a, a lesson in how to write Christian satire? I don't think that's the case, though it's clear. I think the only way we can understand this passage properly is we recognize that Paul is being very, very satirical, and at times even very sarcastic, as he mocks the alleged wisdom of these false teachers, and he turns Greek wisdom on its head to show that the, the foolishness of cross is wiser than the wisdom of the sages of this world and this age. So again, what's the point of this passage? Is it that we should simply be more self-deprecating? We kind of cover up our, our real pride by giving a false sense of modesty? I don't think that's the case either, because you're not dealing with the heart. You're just covering it up. You're just masking it. You're cloaking it, like pouring old spice on a corpse. It's not going to last real long. The point is this, that to boast in anything but the cross of Christ is foolishness. And Corinth has failed to boast in the cross of Christ. Paul's whole argument here in chapters 10 to 13 is to 
expose the foolishness of boasting. But here we must stop and examine our own hearts. You see, to boast in your own spiritual triumphs and accomplishments does nothing but highlight a shallow or fraudulent faith. If you as a person or if we as a church, if we boast in our own accomplishments, even spiritual accomplishments, it shows how much we have failed to grasp the reality of the cross. I really think the message of 2 Corinthians is this, that the cross is it's not, it's not simply the start of the Christian life. The cross is the whole of the Christian life. That this life for the Christian is one of suffering and weakness. And it's something that so many Christian publishing companies fail to get. Because what do you see if you go into, if you drive down to Eugene and you go to a Barnes and Noble and you look at the Christian section? Every book in, in the Christian section seems to be how to, you know, 10 steps to a more victor- victorious life and, and all these kind of health and wealth prosperities or, or uh, attempts to make you feel better. Even we feel the, uh, the, the pressure. We have to recognize that suffering is for this life and the glory is for the life to come. Any relief that we're given as a church is it's a great honor that God gives um, because Paul had times of plenty as well. But on the whole, this part of our earthly wilderness is one where we're conformed to the image of Christ, being made to look like Him in the shape of the cross. And when we fail to recognize that the grace of God is the sole source of our salvation, we fail to grasp what the, the cross is all about. But when we recognize that the grace of God is the sole source of our salvation, it renders all other accomplishments null and void. Corinth's boast, all of their trust has been exposed as a sham. They've put their hope in celebrities and superstars who boast in their own sense of self-worth. That's to quote Commander Tom Jordan from, from Top Gun. Their egos are writing checks that their body can't cash. They've made empty promises and they've failed to deliver. Do not trust a church that boasts in its own accolades. Do not trust a Christian leader who is bought into his own PR. That's essentially what Paul is telling the church of Corinth. Because once that church or that leader has done so, they have failed to grasp the cross. And we are nothing apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are you boasting in? That's the question for self-reflection. Do we boast in our own education? Our own training, the letters behind our name, our own personal success, the amount of money in our bank account, or any other thing that we try to use to give us a sense of self-worth, self-worth and value. If we say God must love me because X, and the anything, any other answer is because of God's own free mercy, 
then we have missed the boat. Perhaps we can dig even more deeply. I think we ought all recognize if we boasted in our own education or our own finances, many of us would recognize that that's, that's bad. I shouldn't do that. But how many of us boast in our own personal Christian triumphs? How many people we've led to Christ? How sanctified we think we are? See, that's what the Pharisee does. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Oh Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give to the poor. I do all these things. On the last day, Matthew chapter 25, all these people stand before him. And all these people say, Lord, didn't we do X, Y, and Z in your name? Jesus, I never knew you. You're boasting in your own accomplishments rather than in the cross. Think what happens when we boast in something other than the cross. We now have something that we try to lord over somebody else. We now have something in which we feel like we are superior to somebody else in some way, shape, or form. That superiority might be manifested in our indifference to others. How can they ever struggle with that sin? I've never struggled with that temptation. That superiority might be manifested in the lack of sympathy for the indwelling sin that continues to remain in another brother or sister. Or worse, it might manifest itself in that secret. Yes, when we hear that another believer has fallen into sin and you feel just a little bit better about yourself. When you go, Lord, I thank you I'm not like them. I think the greatest barometer to test where our confidence lies is found in what comes out of our mouth. The mouth reflects the heart. It is the spigot to the well. What do you boast in? Are you boasting in your own goodness or in God's grace? That's the litmus test. The solution is not to become more self-deprecating and to kind of musk up the smell of our own self-righteousness. The purpose is to bring our self-righteousness to the cross because Christ died for that as well. And our self-righteousness must be put to death as much as the most heinous of our sins. The point here that we see in this passage is to teach us to learn to boast not in our own accomplishments, but in Christ who has subjugated us to himself and made us heirs of an inheritance that we could never earn. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray that you would forbid it that we should boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would toss all of our accomplishments into the trash heap that we would set aside all of our failures as well and to know that you love us not because of our merits and not in spite or not because of any demerits but because of your Son and simply because of your grace and grace alone. We ask that you would work faith in our hearts to trust you that we would receive a righteousness that comes through faith apart from works. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.